0: Listening to American Exception, and I'm Aaron Good. This is part nine of our Destiny Betrayed series on the JFK assassination. In this episode, we're very honored to have Oliver Stone in conversation with our special guest host Abby Martin. First, a brief introduction.
1: What's up, everyone? Once again, I'm Haley Roundzville, fourth cousin of Richard Nixon, and historian over at The Culture with a K. on Twitch and YouTube where you can find me covering current events and related history beats from a leftist point of view. Alongside my friend and mentor Peter Kuznick, this week's honored guest was instrumental in my history education and subsequent radicalization, taking me from sympathetic enthusiast historian to a passionate anti-imperialist. Oliver Stone is a Vietnam veteran and two-time Purple Heart recipient, fashion icon, self-described dramatist historian, and one of the most celebrated and controversial filmmakers of all time. Stone and his films have won numerous Academy Awards, including Best Adapted Screenplay for Midnight Express, Best Director and Best Picture for Platoon, and Best Director for Born on the Fourth of July, among other honors. Through works like JFK, Salvador, Untold History, and many others, Oliver's films introduced to me on a raw, human level the extinguished lives and dreams that served as stepping stones of empire. In a career spanning decades, his works place the myriad horrors of American imperialism in the context of a larger historical process, one that was not predestined, but in fact carefully constructed over the course of generations, and as such, can be undone. In 1991, Oliver Stone released JFK, perhaps the most incendiary motion picture in the history of American cinema. As you'll hear shortly, two things set this film apart from other controversial pieces. First, JFK is the only movie to be viciously attacked in prestige media before its filming had even begun. Second, it is the only film whose public reception precipitated in the passing of a major piece of legislation, the JFK Records Act of 1993. It's worth noting that, in apparent confirmation of JFK's thesis about our lawless national security state, the US government is currently in violation of this law by refusing to release all the documents as required by the act. Despite the relentless smear campaigns, JFK went on to become a critical and commercial success, grossing over $200 million worldwide. But it also earned Stone everlasting scorn from the so-called establishment. It didn't matter how many historical facts supported the film's narrative at the time, or how much subsequently declassified documents strengthened Stone's case. For example, we now know that Clay Shaw did indeed perjure himself by saying that he had no connection to the CIA when he was in fact a highly paid CIA agent with clearance for the mysterious operation known as Quicken Chan. We also know that the Director of Central Intelligence was personally involved in providing legal assistance for Clay Shaw. Perhaps the most revelatory parts of the film, though, dealt with Kennedy's planned withdrawal from Vietnam. Kennedy's stance on Vietnam being presented as the crux of his undoing garnered the most vitriolic attacks from corporate media and mainstream historians. Not even two decades had passed since the United States' shameful defeat following three decades of war in Southeast Asia, and the country was lurching towards a permanent presence in the Middle East designed to remedy this Vietnam syndrome. The Soviet Union collapsed just six days after the film was released. No one wanted to hear that forever war wasn't the answer. Fortuitous, then, that Vietnam was the area where Stone's JFK has been most thoroughly vindicated. For example, it took until 1997 for the JFK Records Act to compel the government to declassify an October 4, 1963 memo from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs containing the following passage. On October 2, the president approved recommendations on military matters contained in the Joint Chiefs' report. The following actions derived from these recommendations are directed. All planning will be directed towards preparing South Vietnam for the withdrawal of all U.S. special assistance units and personnel by the end of calendar year 1965. But of course, none of this was enough to persuade corporate media to report honestly on emerging JFK revelations. There was no reporting when in the late 90s, it was revealed that Robert and Jackie Kennedy secretly sent an emissary to the Soviet Union with the message that they knew the Russians weren't behind the assassination. Rather, they believed that JFK was killed by a domestic right-wing conspiracy, and that getting justice for President Kennedy and realizing his goals for peace would have to wait until RFK could get to the White House. The mainstream media also ignored David Talbot's 2007 book, Brothers. In the book, Talbot revealed that if RFK had won the presidency, he planned to reinvestigate his brother's assassination, which he believed was a CIA production that also involved the agency's mafia and Cuban exile friends. In 2021, Oliver Stone teamed up with historian and author James Eugenio to release a documentary follow-up to JFK. The abridged version of the documentary aired on Showtime beginning last November under the title JFK Revisited, Through the Looking Glass. The film has been well-received internationally, with a viewer at the mainstream UK Independent writing that even the director's fiercest detractors will find it hard to dismiss the evidence he has assembled about the JFK assassination in the new documentary. Once I'd seen it and heard him hold forth, I came away thinking that only flat earthers can possibly still believe that Lee Harvey Oswald shot President Kennedy all on his own. It's that convincing. In the U.S., however, the film has been studiously ignored by the corporate press. Notable exceptions to this media blackout include desperate hatchet jobs in Rolling Stone and the Washington Post from intelligence-friendly writers Tim Weiner and Max Boot. All of this serves to hammer home the point that almost 60 years after the fact, the JFK assassination story is still too explosive for the governing US media, while more and more revelations continue to come to light. In late February, the more comprehensive four-hour version of JFK Revisited will be released on DVD, Blu-ray, and for rental or purchase on Amazon Video. This cut is entitled JFK, Destiny Betrayed. Today we're honored to have series contributor Abby Martin talking with Oliver himself about his JFK films and the historical significance of the Kennedy assassination.
2: Oliver, thank you so much for sitting down with me today.
3: Well, it's an honor too for me. So,
2: from your first experimental film about Vietnam to the groundbreaking cinematic films about Vietnam to the Latin American features to the Putin tapes to the to the Snowden. Your entire filmmaking career has always hit on extremely important political issues. You've chosen to do two films about the JFK assassination. About what? About the JFK assassination. Yeah. So, why does JFK have the same political importance as these other topics?
3: Well, first, I just want to say, in your preface, I have not always just done serious, serious films. I've also responded to something in myself as a filmmaker and felt like dancing or singing. I've done musical-type movies like The Doors, and I've done a football movie like Any Given Sunday. I mean, it's just not always a, a serious. I'm not. I don't consider myself that documentary filmmaker that, let's say, Emil D'Antonio used to be back in the old days, you know, serious uh, documentarian. No, I've stumbled onto these things. I've I've had to grow because I was started, my father was a conservative and I grew up that way. So it took me time to figure out my path in this world. Uh, Obviously, the Vietnam War had a lot to do with it, but, you know, learning things as I went. So... I was hardly where I am now, where I was when I started. So it's been growth in all these things, I have to say. It's really important to understand that. I didn't really start doing documentaries until 2001, when I did the Castro documentary. Uh, and then I'd done like nine, ten since then, including the history, the history of the United States. But before 2000, no, I was doing features. And I still love features, but not always. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, they're more complicated and more expensive to make. Documentaries allow you to speak more directly to the issue. So, that said, uh, the JFK case came up in 1988, 89, uh, when I was making Born on the Fourth of July, and I met a very interesting woman called Elaine Ray, who ran Sheridan Square Press with her husband, Bill Shapp, And they uh, were from New York, very dedicated leftist type people. She had known Jim Garrison very well and had been at the trial. She'd been a big supporter of the trial back in New Orleans in 69, 69, and uh, gave me this book that Jim had written called On the Trail of the Assassins. Jim had written the same book 20 years before, Heritage of Stone, but nobody had paid much attention. So he went back, but he made it better. He made it more dramatic. And it was about his journey into this case in New Orleans. He was a the district attorney of, of uh, New Orleans Parish. And uh, it was a good thriller. And uh, Frank, I wasn't really knowledgeable about the case, the case until I read the book and then started to do some research. I met with Jim, I met with... which was quite interesting. He opened up a whole world to me, and then I met with Fletcher Prouty, who had been a... Air Force officer had been working with the CIA for many years since World War II. He was also opened up a whole new world to me. and So then from there it was down the rabbit hole. Read the book, optioned it, made my uh, Born on the Fourth of July, and then I made The Doors. I made Born on the Fourth of July, and then I'd read the book. I optioned it, very interested. It went back to New Orleans, started doing more and more reading and read a lot. And I said, this is a great idea. This is a movie. This is like a chance to do my, one of my favorites was Z by uh, Costa Gavras in France. And he was a Greek filmmaker, but it's about the Greek coup d'etat of the sixties. And I said, we can do it like, somewhat like that. We can, it would be a revelation. You would start with Dealey Plaza. You'd see the surface of events, like it was reported the conventional approach. And then as you dug deeper, it becomes uh, deconstructed. And that was a perfect movie for me. It was like I'm peeling an onion. And it was tension all the way through because these characters that showed up, you know, and they're strange characters. They're not in your normal run of things. And New Orleans itself is a strange city. If you've been there, you know, it's a little bit crazy. And people are very melodramatic. Mm -hmm. But this is a much larger story. And I I was saying I started on a smaller level This was about a New Orleans story, a prosecutor going after the only prosecutor in the United States who brought charges in the Kennedy case. It's very important because it established at least a beginning of something. The assassination research community had been all around it. There was rumors. There was this, that. But nobody had ever brought charges Mm -hmm. because nobody was in a position to except this prosecutor. So that case was a relatively confined one. Garrison started to go further af- abroad as he got, the story got more complicated. He went to Dallas and he found out stuff and then he went to Washington and Proudy was part of teaching him that this was a much bigger story than just a story of a, of a murder of a president, which could have been like the Garfield murder or, uh, you know, I mean, assassination sometimes is limited in its political scope. But there was a much bigger story here, and, and Garrison knew it, found out about it. And that's where we wrote the scene where he meets Donald Sutherland in Washington, D.C. Sutherland is based on, basically on, on, on Proudy, who tells him the story of his experience and what he thinks happened that day. And it was definitely, the, the president is removed for political reasons, very important political reasons, because he's changing things which is not really evident to the American public at that time, nor is it evident to Jim Garrison. This takes time. You have to study the history. You have to study what he was doing. You have to story of the foreign policy. And that makes it a much bigger story and a much more interesting story. In the movie, Kevin Costner, who plays Jim Garrison, co- turns to the Donald Sullivan and says, this is much bigger than I thought. I can't handle this. And it's true. He wasn't prepared to handle this case. Uh, and I make no bones about it. And you see it in the movie. I mean, he doesn't have a great case. He, has a, uh, he brings charges against uh, Clay Shaw, but by that time, a lot of people have disappeared. A lot of people have been killed, like David Ferry and uh, Bannister, Guy Bannister. People disappear, Eladio Del Valle, uh, people around the case. It's a very, the CIA opens a file on him in 1967, big file, has put five departments on it. Five different departments of the CIA were on Garrison quite a story. They put informers into his office. They put, they wiretapped him. All his subpoenas out of state were killed. I mean, there was quite a, it's a conspiracy against Garrison to make, he went on national TV. They, they went after him and they completely ridiculed him. Uh, uh, but he went ahead with the case. Grand jury believed him. He, grand jury was serious. And uh, the case, the, the trial fell apart in the sense that he didn't have enough evidence. But he proved certain things in the case, and that was very important, actually. One was he got the autopsist, uh, one of the three autopsy guys at uh, Bethesda, doctors, to testify. His name was Pierre Fink. Fink uh, made it very clear to the jury that they didn't have the authority, as doctors, to go ahead, that they were being told what to do by military people. Crucial. He also showed the Zapruder film, which was a, amazing, because that was an amazing document that had been buried for years and would remain still buried. It didn't come out until 70, 75, 1975. So Garrison, uh, he, he made interesting progress in this case, but at the end of the day, yes, Clay Shaw, he linked Clay Shaw in a very interesting way because Shaw, it seems, was a CIA agent. We know that now from my film because uh, that evidence came out from to the Assassination Records Review Board.
2: I know that you followed the conventional wisdom about the JFK assassination until around 88 but as a young man how did that impact you? I mean politically I mean seeing the President of the United States assassinated seeing RFK assassinated and then this slew oh, mean, of as political man, well, assassinations. I mean, that listen, must have impacted you. In the as, 60s, we were yeah. all
3: shocked. I mean, it was, it was just shocking, that's all. We didn't make sense of it. Our leaders were cut down, but we didn't really put it all together. Nobody ran the, the dots between the lines mm-hmm. between John, John Kennedy and Martin Luther King or Robert Kennedy. We didn't make the, we didn't make the connections. Now, I think we can make those connections <clears throat> because they're important to make. But then, no, we were, I was just reacting like everyone else. And then, of course, I went to Vietnam as a soldier, came back. I didn't even connect the Vietnam War to the death of Kennedy. That's very important. The, the narrative at the time was that Lyndon Johnson took power and continued the policies of Kennedy. That is, a, that is nonsense, rubbish. That is absolutely not true. Except for civil rights, Johnson completely changed every foreign policy in every country that Kennedy was working with. Kennedy was trying to change things.
2: Um, It must have been very disempowering to see. This
3: I found out, only through time. And the research community too, people did a lot of work. But we didn't know what Kennedy was up to because he was a charismatic president, spoke very well, but we really didn't know what was going on behind the scenes, you know. And I I brought many of these issues up in the film. I brought up the Vietnam issue, I brought up Cuba issue, I brought up the Russia issue, but I didn't deal with Africa. I didn't deal with Indonesia. I didn't deal with Latin America. There was a lot of other things that Kennedy was doing, which we found out in the course of making this JFK revisited through the looking glass.
2: Well, it's been 30 years since you released JFK. It was a huge commercial and critical success. People were hungry for the truth. Clearly, they wanted something like this. They wanted an entry point to, to know that This was the alternative narrative that made sense, right? There was a deep distrust of the mainstream narrative. But despite this amazing reception, there were papers like The Washington Post, The Chicago Tribune, months prior to the film's release, they were already excoriating it in the press. How did your position change in the legacy media after JFK?
3: Big question. I, I had no idea what I was getting into. I thought the case was over. At the beginning, I thought it was over and it was done with, and that I was going into ancient history here and I was bringing up, that it didn't make any sense. The Warren Commission was a fraud. I mean, it just didn't have, it was had a set scenario that three bullets, one gunman, and it had to stick to that story. Didn't make sense. It was completely illogical. And uh, to this day, I'm shocked at the American the elite American went with that story. They, even John, everybody was uneasy with that story. And that's the truth. People don't know that. Lyndon Johnson himself said, I don't believe uh, the magic bullet theory. He was, he he, he had many doubts, but so did Robert Kennedy, Jackie Kennedy. Jackie Kennedy had written to the Russian, uh, made a message to Khrushchev about, don't think that this was a Russian agent that shot Kennedy. This was done by a right-wing cabal in the United States. That's what they were saying. And uh, other people, De Gaulle, Charles De Gaulle, all these people were experienced in world affairs. They didn't buy that story. Neither did Nasser in Egypt, Sukarno in Indonesia, and Castro in Cuba. Castro had almost been assassinated a dozen times more by the CIA. So he, he knew what was going on and knew that his plan for possible uh, reconciliation with the United States was dead, dead in the water. Same was true about the, the, Nikita Khrushchev, the Premier of Russia, cried. He cried when he went to the American Embassy to pay his respects because he knew that all the plans that they had for detente were dead in the water. Uh, Johnson was another kind of... He was, Johnson was a return to the days of Eisenhower and Dulles and Truman. The post World War Two, the interregnum after, after. Please remember that Roosevelt was a, a a big believer in détente, also with the with with Russia. He recognized Russia in 1933 when he became president. That was the first time American American government had recognized a communist country. Yeah, and he got along with Stalin. He got along with him, and they had plans. You know. People say that, you know, Stalin was leading them along. No, Stalin genuinely liked uh, Roosevelt because he could deal. They were both canny politicians. And uh, after Roosevelt died so suddenly in 45, everything changed in American policy Mm -hmm. against Russia. It was an interesting moment. There's a lot of evidence of it. And uh, that's another movie, but it's partly covered in untold history of the United States which we, when we, we go into that area right after World War II when Truman changes the policy.
2: Well, they must have been terrified that Kennedy was going to be another Roosevelt. That's right, right.
3: I mean, but at that time, you see, now it's shocking. You say, oh, it's impossible, you know, it's impossible to believe there would be a peace between Russia and the United States. This is after 60 years of uh, this, non, uh, this ridiculous foreign policy we have where we threat inflation of, of Russia, China, Iran. You know, we, we build up the, our enemies. Why? Because of, frankly, financial reasons. It's a huge boondoggle to the, uh, to the public, to the, uh, to the Pentagon.
2: Well, it must have been so frustrating and to see. the intelligence agencies. <clears throat> it must have been so frustrating to see the accolades that JFK received, yet the corporate media.
3: Oh, that's ex- just a disgusting story.
2: Undermining the film's message in such a way. You know,
3: uh, we found out as, later, of course, that uh, the CIA had people assets in the media a lot more than we ever knew or or, or at that time it only came out in the 70s and in, it continues to this day there was they they were planted and some of these newspapers you have to think about who owns them and who you know some of them are they're owned by rich people rich media tends to bend towards the government and cre- you know keeping the government cooperating with the government and sometimes you know it comes down to you have to wonder, in the, because of all the things that have happened, and you're aware of it since the 1960s, are some of these newspapers' assets in themselves, you know, <laughs> like the Washington Post. I mean, some of the insane things that they've done and said in New York Times itself, which used to be a, a fountain of so-called integrity, I, you have to have very serious doubts about because the New York Times has supported every war America's been in, including Vietnam and Korea. And since then, supported it. And then eventually maybe moved away from it after it didn't work out so well. But there has been a fundamental... It makes you think that they're uncontrolled by... And we don't have a free media. That's what make, make, that's what the conclusion is. The only media that seems free right now, to me, that is open to the thought that Kennedy could have been killed by a conspiracy of, of run by the government are the... Uh, are the people working like you who are working outside mainstream media. It really worries me. Uh, and the response to my film, uh, Revisited, I can't revisit it. Total blank out. There's not one mention of it. It's they can't deal with the facts that we present in this documentary. This is years after the case. They still cannot, and even back when, so many intelligent people were, were questioning the Warren Commission, I mean, that's why there was an investigation again, a second investigation with the, uh, after the Church Committee and the Rockefeller Commission, but the Church Committee was very important in 1975. After that, there was another investigation, the HSCA. We found out after the Warren Commission that the CIA was trying to kill Castro, which they had never mentioned. The Warren Commission was run by, was not run by, but the major, most influential member was Alan Dulles, who was the head of the CIA. Had been and had been fired by Kennedy, and he was appointed by Johnson to to uh, to the commission. and He he supervised. He was at every meeting. He, he supervised it pretty closely, and he made sure that the CIA never revealed anything of importance to the commission.
2: <clears throat> it reminds me of Henry Kissinger being appointed to head the nine eleven commission. I well, mean, it just doesn't make worse. any sense. Th-
3: this is it far makes worse. No sense. Kissinger never got there. He <clears throat> never he right. never served.
2: But Dulles, I mean, he was psychopath. Dulles I mean, was
3: there. He's not a psychopath. He was, he was a, very, a sociopath. He seems pretty well, maniacal. He, I, though, he could right? say sociopath, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, but he's a very uh, conservative member of the club. His brother, John Foster, was a Secretary of State. He'd been in Wall Street. They'd been doing business with the Nazis for years. And, he, you know, he had a. Roosevelt wanted to, should have fired him. I mean, I don't know how. That, that case is fascinating, but Dulles, as a, as a CIA, as the OSS chief in. Uh, Switzerland was trying to make a separate deal with the Nazi army in, in Italy with, with General Wolfe to surrender Which was not part of the Roosevelt policy So in other words, he was always The Dulles brothers always tended to go off on their own and mm-hmm. do what they wanted to do And under Eisenhower, they, they achieved a power and independence that was unbelievable Eisenhower did not really supervise the CIA during those 50s 1950s years when that's when they grew powerful with the Iran coup with a coup in uh, Guatemala, and also the, the secret attempts to remove uh, Sukarno in Indonesia. But they were everywhere in the world. De Gaulle, there's very strong evidence that they're involved in trying to remove De Gaulle with the French officers that went after De Gaulle in the early 60s. I'm jumping around here, but I'm trying to show you that the world in the... Fi- I think what I originally said to you was that, imagine, if you can, just go back in time. Uh, it's very hard to imagine Go back to 1930, uh, 1945, Roosevelt dies, right? This is a man who's trying to move towards a world situation, world peace after World War Two. Poor powers are going to run the world, basically. But the United Nations is going to be very important. This is 1945. By 1963, when Kennedy is killed, it's only like 18 years. 40, 45, 55, 63. 18 years of an interregnum where the... National security state takes over. We didn't have that before. All through our history, all of a sudden, it's a new world from 45 to 63, uh, building up uh, military weapons of war in peacetime, an army, keeping uh, the, nuclear, the nuclear mandate tightly under control, to trying to deny any other country the, the right to nuclear so that we'd be the kingpin, which we were. So by 1963, it's only been in business 18 years, This in regnum of a war, a war preparation, a preparation for war state, mm-hmm. national security. Everything is an emergency. This is what really basically happened. Truman put it into effect. 1947, he put the, with the Greek war, the Greek, I mean, it, America all of a sudden was running the world and deciding who's who and who's boss. We are the bully and we got bigger and bigger. 63, it was gonna be over. He was gonna go back to the Roosevelt way of doing business, which was a cooperative peace, as he said in his peace speech in 1963, a few uh, three months before he died.
4: What kind of a peace do I mean? And what kind of a peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war, not the peace of the grave, or the security of the slave. I am talking about genuine peace, the kind of peace that makes life on Earth worth living, the kind that enables men and nations to grow and to hope and build a better life for their children. Not merely peace for Americans, but peace for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, but peace in all time. I speak of peace because of the new face of war. Total war makes no sense in an age where great powers can maintain large and relatively invulnerable nuclear forces and refuse to surrender without resort to those forces. It makes no sense in an age where a single nuclear weapon contains almost 10 times the explosive force delivered by all the allied air forces in the Second World War. It makes no sense in an age when the deadly poisons produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the globe and to generations yet unborn. Today, the expenditure of billions of dollars every year on weapons acquired for the purpose of making sure we never need them is essential to the keeping of peace. But surely the acquisition of such idle stockpiles which can only destroy and never create is not the only much less the most efficient means of assuring peace. I speak of peace therefore as the necessary rational end of rational men. I realize the pursuit of peace is not as dramatic as the pursuit of war and frequently the words of the pursuers fall on deaf ears, but we have no more urgent task.
3: It's uh, a beautiful speech. It's and a beautiful and speech.
2: It's very moving and I've never he, seen he, it before. He it was pays very homage,
3: powerful. Yeah, he, You should show a clip of it. He pays homage to the Russians how many people they lost in World War II. And he says, they are like us. Uh, they have lost half their country. I mean, that was enormous below World War II. They won World War II, basically. Mm-hmm. And they, they broke the German war machine. After that, uh, he, Kennedy said, you know, we are all mortal. We love our children. Mm-hmm. We drink the same water. We breathe the same air. We are mortal. He understood that. That was a man of compassion because he'd been in war, like Roosevelt. That's why I find him remarkable, like Roosevelt, in the sense that in the sense that he understood war and the danger of war, and he was no war lover. He'd been there. He, he constantly said, war is not inevitable. He used to say that. Peace, peace. He was pushing peace. And, and uh, if, if, there we can go into all the details of it, but he was truly the president for peace. Now, he disappears in 63. Johnson takes over. Within a year, we're sending combat troops. He, he only had advisors there. Right. Combat troops to Vietnam. Yeah. Uh, within two years, 500,000 troops are there. Johnson is into a war right away. And it's a miracle we didn't go to war with Cuba because that's what the Pentagon wanted. The reason you know, I believe that he was killed was that he refused to go to war twice in Cuba. That's really the reason. People say that it was Vietnam, no. Vietnam was still out there. The problem was that Kennedy inherited Berlin, the Berlin situation, the wall. He built the wall. He said the wall is better than a war. In Cuba, Bay of Pigs, he did not back. uh, Dulles was counting on him sending troops to support the invasion because they had been pinned down on the beach. So he expected, like Eisenhower would do, that Kennedy would come in. Kennedy said no, and he told him in advance he wouldn't do it. It was just a botched invasion. Ridiculous. He said he didn't want any Americans getting into Cuba and, take, and then we'd be considered the bad guy again. He was very aware of that. He wanted a new regime. He wanted a clean slate. America is no longer what you think it is. We're not going to be, go around overthrowing regimes, intervening in countries. That's out. And he stuck to that. And they hated him for it. They started to hate him for it, the Cubans especially. A year and a half later, we have the Cuban Missile Crisis in October '62. And again, he gets a maximum pressure from his chiefs of staff and from his military leaders and the CIA and from the older people around him. Let's call it the older statesmen like Dean Atchison, Secretary of State. Even, uh, even uh, Eisenhower tells him to go into Cuba now because the Cubans have taken these, uh, the Russians are there with missiles, and they don't even know they're nuclear, but they're missiles and there's, sh- America has said we cannot have m- missiles 90 miles from our border, which is where Cuba is. This is very close to home. And I can understand there, these people are thinking in World War II terms, you know, like this, th- we cannot allow communists to be on our shore- off our shores. Kennedy s- says, throughout this crisis, we are not invading. We are not attacking. We are going to try to solve this thing because otherwise it's going to lead to a major, major Armageddon. It'll be Cuba, and then it'll be Russia, and then it'll be us in Berlin. And then it grew as big as we're going to go into China because the Pentagon had a plan. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah to nuke China. To I nuke mean, this, China. This was... All this
3: came to being. This was Eisenhower plan. Yeah. All this came into being in 1963, 62 uh, in October. Yeah. a Scary moment.
2: Averting potential nuclear Armageddon. Staving off the military-industrial complex that was pressuring him to add troops totally. to Cuba, the Bay of Pigs. I mean, that 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 is a really important force that you are resisting.
3: People don't right? understand that still. They don't understand how close it came. I remember that so vividly. I mean, that, I
2: was, that alone could have been enough for the war machine to want to take him out. The fact that he resisted. Well, that's the, what I was trying to say. Yeah, I, yeah, think yeah, right. I think that was right. his death warrant right.
3: when he refused to uh, countenance the attacking Cuba on 63, in mm-hmm. 62. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't mm-hmm. do it. Right. And he, they knew he wouldn't do it because he really stuck to his guts on that. That took tremendous amount of courage on his part because he was alone there with his brother, Robert, right. and uh, he didn't have much support. And uh, his brother and him solved the case. They, they, with Khrushchev directly, those two were both were responsible for saving basically the world from going to war
2: That's incredible
3: both were removed within a year kennedy first and then khrushchev was removed in 64 if you remember correctly by the hardliners in the in the in the, uh, in the in the kremlin so the hardliners exist in both russia and the united states pushing for a confrontation or at least definitely a more macho approach to this to this situation no, so uh, think about it, think it through. Uh, I, uh, they say uh, the Vietnam uh, experience, it's going on at the same time. Right after that, they start putting uh, putting their energies into Vietnam. Kennedy says, if I won't go into Cuba, which is 90 miles away, why would I go into Vietnam, <laughs> which is 6,000 miles away? And he stuck to that logic basically throughout. And we, in our documentary, have gone back and uh, we... we uh, The Assassination Records Review Board has done more work, declassification of files, including a very important meeting in April of uh, 63, when McNamara is in Hawaii with the SecDef Conference, what they call Secretary of Defense Conference. And he tells the generals there that we are coming out of Vietnam, when basically win or lose, we have to go faster, he says. Now that's a very important point because People dispute that. They say, Right.
2: Oh, Historians have disputed yeah. that after JFK came out. There was a lot of dissent uh, saying that that was, that was news. not true. But that was, you were vindicated later on with, with well, the documents. We know more mean, this and more about revenge. it because
3: McNamara wrote a book about yeah. it after my film. Right. Where and he even, said, even, we were even, coming out win or lose. McGeorge Bundy later on wrote another book. He was the national security advisor. He was a hawk. And he said Kennedy was pulling out.
2: Even Tim Weiner in the New York Times had a 1997 editorial saying about Kennedy's early withdrawal plan from Vietnam. I mean, did you ever get an apology? They
3: didn't describe it correctly. Did
2: you get an apology after?
3: No, forget it.
2: You were vindicated.
3: Well, you say that, but they never allow you to be vindicated. (laughs) I'm a bad guy for them forever because I'm an interloper, I guess, an outsider. And but, you know, I had a lot of advice from people like Fletcher Prouty, the people who were involved in these decisions and they were around the case. And I've talked to a lot of military people. They know what was going on. You can't hide that. This was a draft. It was written, prepared, everything put out. And then it was redrafted. And then they wouldn't go with that redraft. That was when he was killed. And Johnson put out another draft called 273, National Security Action Memorandum 273, and it changes the rules by which we are allowed to attack North Vietnam, South Vietnam, North Vietnam, really, with our air force. And we did that. I mean, it Talking. led to the Gulf of Tonkin. Well, the con- Tonkin resolution. resolution,
2: the fact that it was written up prior to even the alleged attack, uh, I think really speaks volumes. We brought so
3: much more evidence to so this. John Kenneth Galbraith comes into the situation. He's a very interesting character. He was an ambassador to India, a peace, a piece, a liberal and his son is in the film, and we, we go into all these details. Mm-hmm. We don't want to get into too much detail, but the truth is that it was Cuba that was the reason he was killed. That was set in motion, the, the plot, set it in motion. And Vietnam was an exacerbation of it, but he hadn't wanted to... He did the same thing in Laos in 1961. Eisenhower told him, go into Laos, because there was a civil war brewing there. and He, he made it... He, he, he opted for a neutral solution. So yeah. he was not a warmonger. He was the contrary. And in everywhere you look, with Nasser, he was trying to make a deal. And he wanted the Middle East to cool out. It wasn't... It, it, and I think Nasser loved him. Nasser loved him. He was the first American president, maybe, I don't know about Roosevelt, but basically to reach out to the Arabs and, and say the Palestinians, for example, in the homeland of Palestine. he He wanted the Palestinians to have... Maybe he was being an idealist, but he wanted the Palestinians to have a choice whether they want to be repatriated to their homeland or whether they want to be relocated abroad. As you know, uh, the Israel was building up at that time. Ben Gurion was their prime minister, and they they were starting to uh, build up a nuclear their their nuclear their atomic uh their atomic bomb, and they started building one. He heard about it, and he. Was very adamant about it. He told Ben-Gurion twice, I believe, not to do this, to stop. Otherwise, he was going to cut off all the aid. It's very serious. Ben-Gurion was shocked. No American president had ever done this with, with them. They'd gotten their what they wanted from the beginning with Truman and Eisenhower. So what happened? It was the... Uh, I forgot the name of the plant they were in. Do you remember the name of the facility they were building in Israel? No. It was a uh, I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of it, but it's an interesting story. Mm -hmm. So uh, Kennedy cut off any help, technical help we were giving them. But then when he was killed, it stopped, and Johnson not only continued giving them what they wanted, and they built up themselves into an atomic power by 1967. When they actually came online as a nuclear power, Johnson didn't even reveal it to the American public. He, he buried it. He didn't want that story to get well, out. it's still
2: buried today. So we never I mean,
3: heard about it until years later, if you remember correctly. They still when did don't, even admit, get this, it. They when don't did, even admit it. They don't even admit it. When did Israel get this bomb? You know, we, we, we never really knew. Incredible.
2: Know. Yeah, I mean, the Mideast policy that JFK had is very unexplored. And so that was really great to, to see in the film that um, Nasser, you know, went to the state of deep depression, that Egypt went into a state of mourning. That's how much of an impact that JFK had. You know, JFK had the unique distinction, of course, of having a real historical impact. Leading to the JFK Records Act, I I think it was the first time that a film has ever led to actual legislation. It's very cool to see you actually testifying at Congress in the film, which resulted largely from the addendum that you put on the original Film. Did you have any clue? Did you have any inkling that it would result in such a real-life impact? You have to understand, I was younger, and
3: sometimes you don't wake up to everything that's going on. I mean, I was over my head in the sense that I was being attacked left and right. So it took guts to go there and to Congress and to actually—because I knew they hated me for causing this stir, but at the same time, (laughs) they had to answer to the public— by saying, okay, we gotta deal with this nutcase. We're, <laughs> we're gonna do this investigation, uh, and then he'll go away. But I didn't go away because a lot of researchers were around me, and they, they're the guys who did the work, not me. I'm not a researcher. They were going through the documents that were coming out, and they went through all these documents that the ARB, ARB put out between 1994 and 98. That was when they, the commission lasted. Those four years. But those, they put out, I forgot how many documents. I think they got 60,000.
2: Jesus, and they were trying to keep them until 2039. 75 years.
3: Well, that was originally. At the end of our film, we put a a tag. It wasn't my idea. It was the idea of our, actually, uh, Frank Mankiewicz, who was our public relations in Washington. He's the brother uh, of Joe and uh, a very interesting, He was Robert Kennedy's press secretary a man who loved the Kennedys and actually believes that Robert, too, was killed in a conspiracy as was JFK. So he went to bat for us and he said, let's put up a tag on the, the, saying when, this, when you can see these files from the, from the House Select Assassinations Committee. That was the second investigation, the second serious one, HSCA. That was done in 1978. Uh, and it was a serious investigation that was derailed. It's a fascinating story, I don't want to go into too much detail, but a lot of what they did was classified. They came to the conclusion that there had been a conspiracy uh, because of the audio tape of the motorcycle. This story, is, there's so many fascinating stories in this assassination. You can write books about it and many have been written, but basically they came to that conclusion, but it was buried in the files that we were never to see until 2039. So that was what we put in it as a tag. Not expecting any results, because there had been no results for years. The government had stonewalled the whole thing. Sure enough, uh, that got a lot of attention, and it continued. So that became, we, we threw out all these hooks, and that was one of the hooks that stuck. And over the years, the assassination community went through these documents, and there's a lot there. Never reported. The media didn't report it correctly. Uh, people just said you know this there was the Northwoods operation was reported that was the only thing I think that came out in the media one of the few things but you know it's hard when you do you need to be paying attention to the details you have to be Sherlock Holmes here you get a little, lot of little details It's the aggregation of the details that make a difference in a murder case Holmes uh, Sherlock would have understood that and that's what these guys do in the community they're great. There's forensic guys like Cyril and all those people, uh, Gary Aguilar. There's the people who do the autopsy, the people who do the story of Oswald, which is an intelligence story. The fingerprints of intelligence are all over Oswald. Then there's people who follow foreign policy. All these thing, elements come together to explain the assassination. It's not simple, but you can do it, and you can follow it. And they followed those documents, and that's what we put in the movie. Well, Our movie is a result of those documents, and that's why you have to pay attention to it.
2: Right, and it's it's not like you have to prove what happened, you just have to prove what didn't happen. That's right. These documents are still out there, a lot of them are. Trump was pledging to release them, he kicked the can down to Biden, Biden blamed COVID, and... (laughs) you know said that quote temporary continued p- postponement is necessary to protect against identifiable harm to the military defense intelligence operations law enforcement or the conduct of foreign relations that is of such gravity that it outweighs the public interest in immediate disclosure comment on biden and trump refusing to do this and also what it could mean about what's in the documents well
3: first of all it's illegal what they did it was supposed to all come out but then the new law the uh, came was supposed to come out uh, the last one was, the last, I think it was 2017. That was when Trump was supposed to free up everything. And he, he claimed that he would, but he didn't, because at the last second, he got pressure from somewhere, presumably the intelligence agencies, and he closed it down. And it went on. He, he broke the law, you know, basically. Yeah. And then it went on. But that's okay. The intelligence agency break the law all the time. <laughs> and uh, it went on into 2018. 19, and then uh, when Biden came into office, who I thought might be a little more sympathetic to Kennedy because he's an Irish, Irish Catholic, but uh, we didn't hear anything uh, positive. And he uh, he released some documents. I don't know what's in them, frankly, because that's going to take a little time. People are ad- are looking at them now. Probably not much. Probably I think they were going in the Russian angle again. Yeah. And uh, then uh, there's there was a bunch of other documents that are supposed to come out when next year correct i mean whether by the time they go through all these documents and scratch out everything or redact everything or else destroy everything
2: that's what i was just going to say why would they have a problem destroying any yeah, of documents? I, I they've done this the whole time they destroyed well, CIA, the cia
3: is never cooperating with this investigation we want files on uh, there's about five agents who are around the case around the cuban community george Joannidis, uh, david atlee phillips william harvey these are very important people james angleton who was a counter-terrorist, counter-intelligence chief who knew a lot about Oswald because he kept a file on him for four years. And obviously the file on Dulles, but, you know, that's, that's how... All these things, they never come out. I don't know if they're around. They're gone, maybe. But these agents are all accounted for. They were around the Cuban community. They ha- they, they organized they Fair Play for Cuba. They organized the stu- the student directorate. The, uh, I forgot the name of it. it they... Anti-Castro and pro-Castro groups. Yeah, they
2: were funding both sides. Well, yeah. that's what's so fascinating about this is that the film is mostly based on the contradictions that have come out from the government's own documents. Yeah. Right. This is yeah. this is based on the questions that have arisen from their own these documents. Yeah. So it's like, how could you write this off? This is this is yeah. from the files. Yeah.
3: It's a mess. The case is a mess because it was always, it was a, you know, they they went by the standards of like it was a foreign like they pulled off an assassination the way they do it in a foreign country, and they didn't think that they would be that big a deal. They wouldn't be tracked down by all these nutcases out there who are looking at every document. They didn't think that way.
2: The Zapruder film had to play a role in... What? The Zapruder film really...
3: That yeah, was another surprise, what yeah. They said, yeah. And that, too, has been uh, concealed from the public for a long time, until 1975, when it was on Geraldo Rivera yeah. show. Garrison got it out for the trial, which was amazing, by the way. That was against all plans. They really... Uh, and who knows what they cut out of the film? I don't know. But basically, it, it, there was enough in the film for us to claim in our movie that the, his his head went back into the... You
2: just see it with your own eyes. Back I mean, into it, the
3: left. You don't have to be a genius yeah, to figure that out. I mean, that... The shot came from the front. The kill shot. And they, they can, they've come off with every theory, including... Elephants dangling off the edge of a cliff, you know, you can say, you can prove anything in physics by saying Ah, that's that's a neuromuscular reaction this that blah blah blah. It ain't so this is basic infantry stuff He was killed from the front and from the rear and it was more than three shots because The, the single bullet doesn't work at all as we tried to show there was no chain of custody on it The bullets all fucked up the FBI lied about it repeatedly
2: the forensic evidence is so overwhelming, but for me, the most compelling part of the documentary was the parallel assassination plots
3: yeah. that well, were uncovered forget, in Tampa Don't in forget Chicago. that they can't prove that that was the rifle, it was another rifle. In fact, if you go back to the Roger Craig testimony, he says it was a Mauser he saw. He was the most honest cop and he, got, he committed suicide because he was driven crazy. He said it was a Mauser. They, of course, his Carcano, which is a joke, C- Italian rifle, couldn't kill anybody. It comes out, and it's a different length. There's no fingerprints on it at all. It goes right to the FBI expert, who says that it, there's nothing on it. That's a, that's a fact, you know. And it comes back to—then the, they send it back to Dallas, and all of a sudden it comes back with, oh, there is a partial print. Who put that partial yeah. print on it? I mean, that kind of shit happens. The bullets.
2: Yeah, the bullets found, I mean, and in perfect tact.
3: It's- don't forget the eyewitnesses, what they saw. Most of the people ran to the fence, you know, there's— Anyway, uh, the, the sling itself, the rifle, the sling, but on top of it, you mentioned, don't forget the autopsy, that's a farce. The brain is missing. And the, 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 we saw half the brain spill into the streets. We saw the dripping, the nurses at, at Parkland saw his brain dripping. The, the,
2: the um, Yeah, they said it looked like someone pushed his you brain. Know, and back all of a sudden, when the, 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 the autopsy
3: at Bethesda reveals that it's an intact brain. Yeah. It's insane. And that means that something was doctor, somebody doctored that autopsy. And we proved that through a bunch of witnesses, including the photographer of the autopsy, who sees it in the, in the ARB meeting. And he says, that's not the photograph that I took. It's not even on the stock of film that I used, John Stringer. Yeah. And then we go to the other photographer, who maybe have done it behind the scenes, because he was a second, he was Kennedy's favorite photographer. Again, the same story doesn't work out. It was Sandra Spencer, a lab technician, doesn't. It doesn't well, work. You can
2: see the photographs with your own eyes. Okay. The you, forensics evidence yeah. that that's outlined you, 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 in the film you, 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 is so overwhelming. But what I found the most compelling you know, was the parallel assassination plot that was uncovered in both Tampa you know, and Chicago. I mean, just just briefly talk about why this is so meaningful to the case. Well, that in uh, Chicago, specifically, Chicago early found-
3: uh, there, there was a plot. He was going to go. They they were going to kill Kennedy, one way or the other, in the fall. That was the idea. The election was coming up for '64, so it was time to. If he won that election, they were dead in the water because they knew that he would. They knew he would pursue these policies even more ferociously, more eagerly, and they were scared of him. They were scared of Robert Kennedy, who was also the Attorney General. Uh, There was a lot of reasons Uh, they didn't want this. It would have been possibly a dynasty. They saw another Roosevelt. You see, they're thinking in those terms. Roosevelt, nobody expected him to go four terms. So when you're looking at the Kennedy family with Joe Kennedy and all that, it's only been 18 years since Roosevelt died. You have to understand, it's just another time period. So they see the possibility of another dynasty. Robert will follow him, and then maybe Ted Ted Kennedy will be the third Kennedy. But it's not good for them because it would move, the country would move in a completely new direction towards peace. Not going to happen. So uh, this is crucial that they get him in the fall. This is the time to get him. And he is, I have to say, his Secret Service was terrible. That is awful. It's a shame. It's a disgrace what happened. And you have to get into the details of that. In fact, Robert Kennedy was going to take over the Secret Service as the Attorney General and run it more closely because they were worried about it. There was a famous story of the black agent, Abraham Bolden. That's worth a movie into itself. Yeah. But basically in Chicago, early November, uh, there was a plot. Uh, a landlady, uh, there was the same kind of parade route uh, with a high building overlooking the, the, uh, where he had to make it, the car had to make a turn, same, same setup. They picked up there was four a landlady said there were four Cubans in an apartment close by with rifles, and they picked up two of them, the other two disappear. They let them go. they disappear. It's stupid. These are rifles, high powered rifles they have in this apartment two four Cubans, two of them they pick up. We don 't even know what happens to them. I think they were doing this. I think they were thinking that we're going to get the shooter, the patsy, whoever his name, whoever he is, he's going to be pro Cuban. Leftists, so there would be more reason to go and attack Cuba. You understand? The idea was, if their plan worked, Cuba would take the blame. But it got bigger than they expected, and I think the Russia Russia was uh, got involved, and of course they used it. They went against Russia, and now this becomes a very interesting story because I'm just thinking ahead now. Why does Johnson, who takes over the presidency and who doesn't who changes all the policies of Canada except civil rights? Why doesn't Johnson go into Cuba then? This becomes an interesting point in case. Just to finish the other story, there is another plot in Tampa.
2: Similar, yeah. You don't have in Chicago. Yeah. Kennedy
3: cancels uh, the, right. the the the, the uh, Chicago trip and moves into, uh, but he does go on the Tampa trip later, and that's a motorcade, same thing, twenty miles or something, big t- office building, and they have a Cuban shooter there. Uh, Lopez, Gilberto Lopez, I think his name was. And he ends up in, after he does it doesn't go down. Uh, I don't know all the details, but he ends up in Cuba. He takes the flight to Mexico and then Cuba. So he's another uh, similar patsy. Uh, After that, uh, uh, his Secret Service was a disaster that day. Yeah, and and they
2: basically just slapped bogus charges on the one Secret Service agent. The black
3: yeah, the Bolden, man Abraham that, Bolden was yeah, in the Chicago and office up. and pointed it out. He said this this was it, we're not prepared. This is a disastrous investigation and he was uh, he was he was railroaded because of it and went to jail. He was <laughs> they sent him to jail for uh, some bullshit.
2: Let me ask you a question. There's been this enormous rehabilitation campaign for the CIA today. Ah. They have rebranded themselves especially during the Trump era. How does it feel, as someone who has documented so thoroughly the CIA's crimes, to see them elevated as a selfless public? It's servant nonsense. Agency? It's it's
3: it's depressing to be around liberals. Uh, <laughs> I think it needs to be renamed. The liberals have fallen into this RussiaGate uh, again. It's like the old days. You know, everything blame everything on Russia. You know, RussiaGate was a sham, and it should have been seen as a sham right away because there was just no evidence for the so-called stealing the uh, the Democratic National Committee emails, which was nonsense. Never happened that way. And there's proof of it. Again, you have to go into all the details, technical technical details. It was, it was a leak. It, it happened from within. Insider took it. A guy who was disaffected with the party because they had completely screwed Sanders. And there was evidence of it. And all that evidence was used. It came out, but nobody paid attention because there were some more involved for some reason, they got more involved with Russia did it, and that became a, uh, a red herring that pulled them in that direction. Uh,
2: you see these liberals today actually...
3: And then they went after Assange, who I yeah. think is a hero, and That's they perfect. went after him because they say he was involved with the Russians. So all, everything, the whole narrative was screwed up, as it would be in the Kennedy days. But If you see through it, through history, you see that this is Hillary Clinton covering her tracks. She was horrified by this loss to Donald Trump. Reason being, of course, the all the problems the Democrats have communicating, and she loses to Trump and she's a she has to blame it on somebody. She can't take the blame herself. It's so,
2: mortifying, right? I mean she had to she so had to do obviously, it.
3: Obviously, what's the first thing she thinks yeah. of? Russia. Yeah. Or one of her people thinks yeah. of it and they blame it and they get away with it.
2: I mean, you were blamed by Rolling Stone that the JFK conspiracy was yeah, basically yeah, yeah, concocted yeah, yeah. by a Russian disinformation campaign. It is it is ludicrous the alternate reality that these people are living in. But these same liberals who push the sanitization of the CIA will also say, the CIA doesn't do that anymore. They, oh, don't, bullshit. they don't conduct assassinations. They don't, they don't do coups, Oliver. And also, JFK conspiracy can't be true because they would never do that on American soil. They would never commit oh, a awesome. heinous What makes America crime? so special?
3: <laughs> well, that's silly. That's silly thinking because it's not historical. Conspiracies have existed since the beginning of time in every country. Goes on and on and on. And, you know, you have to accept that. It's the way it is. Joe, read your history. People get killed. People are murdered. People change. Governments change. Power is the goal. Power. It's it's the greatest lure of all. Bigger than money.
2: Well, especially because Operation Northwoods was revealed with the JFK Records Act. And it revealed a false flag operation that was being proposed, which is mocked relentlessly the idea of conspiracies in the u.s media meanwhile they accused putin of bombing his own apartment buildings they accused yes. them of concocting a false flag to invade ukraine right now they yes. are calling for preemptive strikes on ukraine right now what lessons can we glean from jfk
3: <laughs> today with what I,
2: we're seeing uh, come full circle oliver we're in the middle of cold war 2.0 exactly
3: Exactly, except they're not communists, they're, they're capitalists. <laughs> and they're, it's, it's no longer the Soviet Union, it's Russia. So it's, it's, continue, it's, it's maybe it's about money in the end, that they have to keep this thing going. They need uh, an enemy, they have to build up this enemy. China, Russia, Iran, Venezuela, uh, Venezuela, <laughs> Cuba, it, it doesn't end. I mean, Syria... There's all kinds of false flags have been planted for years now and it's just, it's getting stupider and stupider and it gets really, as you say, very scary right now, Ukraine. I've been following that situation since 2014 and it's scary beyond belief because it's so irrational what we're doing. Uh, for example, we've been saying that Russia is gonna invade Ukraine for about three months now, building it up in the media like, it's like a build-up, a campaign for an advertising. Okay, they're, they're gonna invade Russia. Russia is going to invade Ukraine, ignoring completely the the Ukrainian on the ground situation, which is that the Ukrainian army is on the border of a autonomous what would like to be an autonomous republic inside Ukraine. These people are a Russian people. They're born, they speak the Russian language, they their loyalty is to Russia, and it's been that way for forever since World War II. But they are now pictured as. They don't even have an identity. Think about it. They're leaders who, that want autonomy, which was promised. The whole idea of the Minsk agreements was to negotiate. The Ukrainian government won't negotiate with these guys who are running the, the, uh, running the republics, who want their independence. Not their independence more, their autonomy. I'm sorry. Autonomy is crucial here. It's like any other demand of any other state. They were robbed of their democracy when the, uh, the Ukrainian when the American uh, protests at Maidan Square happened, they, you know what happened, the Americans came in, supported the bill, put $5 billion into Ukraine and created this demonstration, this monstrosity with a lot of false information that the uh, president of Ukraine was a was a thief and a bum. And he had to, he agreed to go to early elections and uh, it was ignored in, in the media. And now here we are in a situation where we replaced him in a coup d'état, and we put a guy in who had no—he was not who no standing among the in the eastern eastern part of Ukraine. They didn't want him, so it's not—it wasn't a democracy anymore. It turned out they'd been elected; the original guy had been elected. Now they have a, a counterfeit leader. They don't believe in him.
2: Just the imperial areas. And nobody
3: mentions this. Nobody even talks. Yeah. You don't even put a camera in in, Western Ukraine, in eastern Ukraine and ask these people, what do you want? Right. I've right. never heard that. So <laughs> they say, well, Putin is, their Putin, Putin, is it's Putin we have to deal with. That's what the president of Ukraine says. We have to talk only to Putin. We won't talk to these people. Oh, come on. If I had that problem in my country, I would talk to those people, say what they want, and try to give them what they want. And that would solve the whole thing.
2: Well, you never hear that from the Venezuelan You don't opposition. even know who they you are. You hear that from the Ukrainian But no one army. tells no
3: one. you that they were killed. A lot of people were right. murdered when that coup happened. The, they were burned to death in, uh, in uh, Odessa. Yeah. They burned the... Uh, the uh, and who burned them? A lot of them were neo-Nazis. We find that out. They, we find that a large portion of the military situation, in of the military, of the Ukrainian army, is uh, fascist. Well, going back to World War Two.
2: It's insane when you look at the imperial arrogance of the United States to look at a country bordering with Russia and say, we need to do something about that. Because I mean, we, I control just can't.
3: The ma- we control the narrative.
2: It, it's unbelievable. You know, there's this deep-seated distrust in our institutions, obviously. This has originated, I think, and proliferated, obviously, since the JFK assassination. Yeah, well, you and mentioned you one thing very
3: important. Iraq Iraq I just want to mention 9/11. the Northwoods operation. Yeah. Remember, that was a plan to destabilize Cuba, to invade Cuba also, concocted yeah. by the Pentagon. It involved things like blowing up buildings in the United States, killing people. Killing Running, running an airplane into a building. Running an yeah. airplane into a building. It goes yeah. back pre-2001.
2: And like you said, even though it was shot down, this is the first step to making things come true. When you write things down, it doesn't seem so ridiculous. Kennedy when looked you're making at the, a policy prescription, all of a sudden it becomes feasible.
3: Kennedy looked at the plan and laughed. He said, That's, he says, I mean, we, we consider ourselves the human race. They're very dangerous. It's very dangerous. I'm sorry I interrupted you. So go ahead. How
2: do we deal with covert governance? Because you have this kind of cartoonish, mockable idea of the deep state that Trump popularized, but it was partisan. It wasn't real. It wasn't a fundamental understanding of what we're dealing with, what the real deep state is. Yeah. How can we even talk about this? How do we deal with this shadow? Well, that was
3: Jim Garrison's problem. He said, you know, you can't win a trial a trial, an open trial, a democratic trial, you cannot win it in a covert state. They, they cheat, they steal, they use every method possible to deny and to deny that you cannot do it in a covert state. You have to understand the workings of an intelligence agency and that we try, we're trying, people like us, to try to bring out how they work. That's, I do it in my movies, you do it in your news shows, you know, and you're doing a good job at it. And that's, we have to keep trying. And, but I'm scared, too. You know, the intelligence agent might be fed up with me now. You know, <laughs> oh, God, this guy Stone's getting too much. Uh, he's our fly in the ointment. But they got people like you to the take, may, take my place.
2: Well, they like delegitimizing people instead of taking them out. Yeah, now. well, that's, they, that's you know, their we're on the margins now.
3: now. I can't believe we haven't gotten one review from a major media uh, publication on this film. One review. Mm-hmm. Editorials, but no, no reviews. Not one movie critic. Uh, not one television critic has written about it. The
2: media serve power.
3: They, they totally don't want to question
2: the U.S. Empire. It's like we don't exist.
3: We put a lot of work into this documentary. It's like years of work. The assassination community has done tremendous amount of work. Nobody reports it. These are facts, though, not uh, made-up bullshit.
0: No, <sighs> it,
2: is, it is airtight. Everyone obviously should watch the movie. I know that you know one thing that was really powerful for me was just it was really emotional to see jfk's speech bookend at the end of yeah. the film Seeing, you know yeah. seeing the footage that you guys showed and just imagining what if yeah what if history took a different route
3: well there would have been no vietnam war i tell you that that's for sure and it would have been a whole other approach to world affairs i think we would have made a detente with russia we might be in a completely different situation, spending money on our real domestic needs, on our infrastructure and our health and welfare of our people. So that would have been too much for these people to handle. They, they want war because war makes money. You know, I, I, there was a strange thing that happened when, really people believe this. I went down to South of the Border. was a documentary I did in 2009. I was talking to the president of, uh, Nestor, Nestor uh, Kirchner, president of Argentina, and he told me, George Bush had met with him down there and had come into the room, and, and they were talking about uh, the, uh, the Venezuela situation, and Bush actually said, war is good for the economy. War is good for the economy. <laughs> and he told the story. It's just amazing that he couldn't believe how stupid Bush was, but it's not good for the economy. It's a, it's a false belief. Economists, when they look at it, really understand that and make it clear that it's no good. War is destructive. And it's, not only is it morally wrong, but it's destructive. Well, and
2: the notion that we need a covert intelligence force, right? That yeah. this is embedded and baked in to this yeah, idea of like, American exceptionalism. You're going to the have a hard time getting away this. from that argument. Well, yeah. we need to abolish the CIA.
3: That's a long time ago I said that, yeah. But uh, we're always going to have the... People are always going to want defense. I, I agree. Let, we, we need a defense. Uh, make it reasonable. Make it. Modify it modified. The behavior has to be modified. If you're the biggest bully in the world, which we are, we scare people. They say, well, if we weren't the biggest, the biggest on the block, China or Russia would be. Well, that's always what you hear, but you don't know it. You hear it because that's the justification for the bully to keep the terror going, to keep the fear going. So uh, at some point, you've got to say it. you can't keep building up. You ha- the bully has to modify his behavior because he's so hated That's what happens. And then we'll see if another bully arises and takes over. For some reason, I have very strong doubts on it, because Russia has always stuck to its sphere of influence, and China has always stuck to its sphere of influence. We're the only country in the world, along with Great Britain, that has gone into this world global uh, sphere of influence where we assume we can run the globe. Very dangerous, very dangerous. We have to modify this behavior. So I don't think we're going to lose the CIA ever. Hopefully, we'd lose a covert part of it, but still, it's going to be there, and the military is going to be there, and we have to, we have to understand that people want security, but it's the degree of security. Uh, when uh, there was a great scene in Terry Malick's movie, uh, I love that movie, uh, *Tree of Life*. Do you remember *The Tree of Life*? Oh, well. this is a scene when he's, he's 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 showing the early inhabitants of Earth, and there's dinosaurs and all kinds of monsters and you see a little dinosaur and he's running from the big dinosaur and the big dinosaur catches him so you know you assume he's going to eat him and the big dinosaur puts its claw webbed foot on top of the little dinosaur and looks down at it and makes a bunch of noise you think he's going to eat him and then he lifts his claw and lets him go and it was the first time it was like saying this is where mercy began This is where human beings have to work together. Human beings were running around naked and loincloths or hiding from these dinosaurs, right? It was only because we got together and cooperated that we were able to not be so scared of the dinosaurs. I mean, we have to understand there's a human element here that we have to cooperate with each other. People
2: people love to memorialize JFK without understanding what his true legacy was, what his true beliefs were. I think people subconsciously understand. The untold amount of suffering, mass death that just we saw. I mean, JFK's assassination led to unimaginable suffering and mass death around the world. Indonesia, Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, Brazil, the list goes on and on. This is a very grim history, not only in American history, but world history, Oliver. What would you tell people from the younger generation today who have no concept of this history who don't understand who JFK really was, what do you want to leave them with in well, 2022 as the U.S. empire is on this irreversible trajectory?
3: I know. Obviously, it's clear now what's happened. When we were young, or when I was young, well, uh, I felt the same way, that there was hope in the world and idealism. You know, it was gonna be a better world, and it looked like it was gonna be. Even with the Vietnam War, after that thing, we thought we were gonna... The 70s and the 80s were... 90s were, it didn't work out that way and we couldn't control it, we couldn't fight it because a lot of people in our generation went the other way. They started to believe all this, well we have to be stronger than them, and we have to be, we have to kick ass first because we're going to have our ass kicked, the bully argument. A lot of people went into that and, and we elected the wrong people, we, were, we elect. there was no real president. It, Alternative. If you think about it, after Kennedy, no one was talking about peace.
2: There was a message strongly sent that.
3: So I think things would... got controlled, taken over. I think that the the manipulators behind the scenes, the the CIA's of the world, they they understood the way the world worked, and they put their they, they took over in a sense. When Kennedy was killed, the military and the intelligence agencies took over secretly, covertly. And they run or a part of the government, they, the most important part. No president can go against them. No president can go against them. Kennedy tried, and de Gaulle actually tried, and he succeeded. He was one of the few who succeeded. They tried to kill him several times. He succeeded. But they eventually, they move in. And the NATOs of the world, they move in. That's what's scary. The whole world has been uh, corporatized in that sense of militarily. Now... Uh, it's going to become dangerous, more dangerous, and as a young people in the future, you're not going to have a future if you let this happen. Uh, how do you stop it? You have to stop. I mean, we're doing a lot of good things, making us aware of the environment, and the environment's going to close us down, perhaps. Uh, maybe these, they will make, ch- changes will happen, they always do. And you know, when you think things are going the never, never change is when things happen. I thought many times, that the Soviets and us would go to war. And all of a sudden, Gorbachev came into power, right? And there was a wonderful moment. Who was this guy? We didn't know him, but he seemed like a nice guy and a smile on his face. He was a different kind of Soviet leader. And sure enough, the Soviet Union changed. They said, okay, we're not going to fight you anymore. That's really what happened. That's really what happened. And Gorbachev was a hope in the world. I can't tell you how strong that was. And we all felt it those of us who were sensitive to it. It was a great time, 90s. And then in the, we went to war right away after Gorbachev. Bush went to war with, uh, the first Bush went to war with Iraq uh, on that ridiculous Kuwait war, which was, again, another provocation that we created. And uh, we told uh, Saddam Hussein he could, he could go ahead and do that. Uh, I mean, we are, we're interested in war. We went into, we attacked Noriega Right after we made the agreement with Gorbachev, Noriega was uh, you know, sovereign president of a country. We went right in, snatched him, and pulled him out, we, saying, we're laying down the laws. The United States is, can intervene anywhere it wants, can, can break any treaty it wants, like with the Indians, and uh, just do what it wants. There's no law. We talk about law, but we, we, don't, we don't really respect it. And, and Bush, when he went into, the second Bush, when he went into Iraq, same thing. Oh, fuck the lawyers. We're just gonna go ahead and do it.
2: We need to change that mentality, Oliver.
3: It's a mentality, yeah. But those guys get elected. Tough guys.
2: The choices Fake are tough pres- guys. The fake tough, yeah, they're chicken hawks. The guys, right? the
3: Cheneys and the Bushes never go to war. People who actually go to war know better. Like John Kennedy went to war, I went to war. Mm-hmm. You know the price of war.
2: Thank you. Thank but, you for all
3: your work. Uh, so, but I don't give up because things changed. As I said, in the '80s, I was in the '70s, coming off Carter. It looked bad. Reagan was making war war noises. It looked bad, and all of a sudden, Gorbachev. So sometimes there's a twist of fate. You know, uh, the wheel turns differently. That's what I'm hoping for. Something happens that you don't expect. Could be environmental. Could be. Uh... So don't give up. Don't give up.
0: That is a challenging act to follow, but I want to just say a few words here to expand on the discussion that we just heard. First, just to reiterate what Oliver said, he is not the JFK guy or even a JFK guy. What I mean, uh, he'd say this himself. In fact, he just did in the interview. Uh, What I'm getting at is that other people over decades did the heavy lifting in terms of getting to the bottom of this case. He's really famously associated with it for making JFK and now for these follow-ups, but he's not the person who has devoted uh, his life to this particular case. So it's really important to recognize the staggering amount of work that a lot of people have put into this case and the research uh, into uh, this history that's been suppressed from us, but fully revealed over decades. After the Warren Commission issued its report, along with 26 volumes of like supporting evidence uh, and different interviews and everything else that they threw into those volumes, Uh, Alan Dulles said uh, people never read. So it doesn't really matter what's in the report because people don't read anyway. But it turns out they did. They read that Warren Commission report and they really picked it apart and people began writing articles and books on it. So I'm going to try to give you guys a, a bibliography of sorts of some of the most Uh, Important ones to me that I think if you're really interested in looking further, you should check out. Uh, Jim DiEginio, whose books Destiny Betrayed and The JFK Assassination, The Evidence Today, are excellent. He is the producer of this series. He's also the creator, co creator, and writer for JFK Revisited and Destiny Betrayed, Oliver's two new documentaries. He also runs the Kennedy's and King website, which is a great resource, and Black Op Radio. uh, He makes a lot of appearances on there, which is Leno Sanec's radio show. Uh, David Talbot is the author of Brothers and The Devil's Chessboard. Those are two excellent books. Peter Dale Scott is the author of Deep Politics and the Death of JFK, as well as Dallas 63, in addition to a number of other essays and articles he's written over the years. Lisa Pease wrote articles for Probe magazine, and these were later compiled into a co-edited volume with Jim D'Eugenio called The Assassinations. She also wrote A Lie Too Big to Fail about the RFK assassination. James Douglas wrote the outstanding book, JFK and the Unspeakable. Gerald McKnight is a trained academic historian, and he wrote a detailed examination of the Warren Commission and its failures called Breach of Trust. Gaten Fonzi was on the House Select Committee on Assassinations, and he, he worked for them. And he wrote the book, The Last Investigation, about his experiences there. Joan Mellon, retired Temple University English professor, wrote a Jim Garrison biography called A Farewell to Justice. Jefferson Morley wrote Our Man in Mexico about Wyn Scott and The Ghost about James Angleton. John Newman wrote JFK in Vietnam, as well as Oswald in the CIA and a five-volume series on the JFK assassination. Philip Melanson, a deceased professor, wrote the book Spy Saga about Oswald and his misadventures leading up to the assassination. Sociologist Donald Gibson wrote Battling Wall Street, as well as The Kennedy Assassination Cover-Up. Lastly, James Mahoney wrote this book, JFK Ordeal in Africa, which was the first to really bring out a lot of elements of JFK's foreign policy, including his support for third world nationalism and his desire to see something besides neocolonialism installed in Africa. I haven't gotten that mini bibliography out of the way. I want to flesh out some other areas related to JFK. First, we talk about Eisenhower's speech you know, in different, at different points in this podcast, uh, his military-industrial complex speech, the one that he gave right at the end of his presidency, his farewell address. And this was written by a political scientist who had been influenced by the sociologist C. Wright Mills. Mills, as you hopefully recall, wrote the book The Power Elite, wherein he said the big three institutions of the United States, big business, uh, the political directorate, and the military – that they were all essentially interchangeable in the top spots are increasingly becoming so and that the power represented by the pinnacles of the organizations atop these big three institutions was uh overwhelming and over determining and the middle levels of power like people in congress and national labor unions and um, it, pretty much everything else with any power at all outside of that pinnacle of power, was considered the middle levels of power, and they weren't especially uh, strong in determining outcomes in the United States. They were more or less in a stalemate. Meanwhile, the public, the great mass of people, was becoming something of a mass with no real power uh, in, in terms of outcomes and decision-making in the United States. So the power elite were really in charge, and their solution to economic problems and international problems became pretty much the privately incorporated permanent war economy, meaning that if, they, if the economy needed more government spending to boost employment and so on, better that it be for military purposes and that this be done by corporations. So tax dollars that go to pay for major defense contractors to build lots of weapons, this is like their solution to the problems of uh, capitalism in an advanced society. And this is what Eisenhower warned about this privately incorporated permanent war economy. And that's what the military industrial complex represented, the convergence of interests between Congress and the military contractors uh, and the generals themselves, right? The people that ran the military. This is what JFK was confronting in part, you know, taking Eisenhower's advice. And he wanted to move the U.S. toward a full employment economy that would tackle social problems, John Kenneth Galbraith was one of the economists whose thinking informed Kennedy's plans on these matters. And there was an article in The Nation that wrote about this in terms of Vietnam and how Galbraith was opposed to Vietnam. And this article states For Galbraith, a trusted advisor with unique back channel access to the president. Potential U.S. war in Vietnam represented more than a disastrous misadventure in foreign policy. It risked derailing the New Frontier's domestic plans for Keynesian led full employment and for massive new spending on education, the environment, and what would become the war on poverty. Worse, Galbraith feared it might ultimately tear not only the Democratic Party, but the nation apart and usher in a new conservative era in American politics. Of course, Galbraith ended up being prophetic, unfortunately. Okay, so even knowing that JFK wanted to reorient the United States, we have to acknowledge how establishment JFK's government was. Arthur Schlesinger famously said, we were at war with the national security people. This is well known, and Oliver covers the national security state stuff very well in his films. But there were deeper rifts also, uh, and these were especially clear in the last months of JFK's life. The, the fiasco involving Cable 243, which set the stage for the no Dinh coup in South Vietnam and Ziem's assassination, which JFK didn't really want the coup or the assassination, it seems. And he was outraged when that coup went through. Uh, he didn't quite grasp what was being done. People seem to have gone uh, you know, over his head and around him and so on to, to get this coup sent off, which set the stage for that assassination. Kennedy was outraged when it was sent. He said, this shit has got to stop. He also said, my God, my government's coming apart. Okay. These are three weeks before he's, or a couple months before he's assassinated. The, co- the cable goes out in August, the assassinations in November. Okay. But these fault lines and different fault lines were really there from the outset. For Kennedy, he takes, he comes to office and a, a lot of people like Walt Rostow and Dean Rusk and Paul Nitza and Roger Hillsman, Ed Lansdale, with George Bundy, Henry Kissinger, these all came directly from, to the administration, different parts of the administration, from the Rockefeller Brothers, uh, their, the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. They had a special studies project. Okay, This group had been hand-chosen by Nelson Rockefeller to assist him when he was seeking the presidency. And one author even calls this Nelson Rockefeller's secret victory, uh, pointing out that Even though Kennedy knew powerful people because of his family connections and political experience, they were mostly politicians, not men with experience in foreign affairs. So if you want to understand the opposition to JFK, it goes beyond the military brass and the military industrial complex and the CIA even. In U.S. diplomacy, there was a long history of corporate power intertwined with U.S. diplomacy. Standard Oil in particular was famous for putting its men into the U.S. diplomatic service. Uh, Eric Foner, the famous historian, mentions this in Give Me Liberty, which is like the most popular high school history textbook, uh, U.S. history textbook. Okay, Alan Dulles in particular, going all the way back to World War I, was an intelligence guy working in the State Department. So intelligence used to be nestled in the the State Department bureaucracy. Uh, At the same time, he was also a Sullivan and Cromwell man representing Standard Oil in Europe and in the Middle East when he was stationed in Constantinople. So the super blue blood OSS guys um, were operating during World War II, the intelligence service created during World War II. uh, And these were people like Dulles, right? And other people like William Donovan, people connected to Wall Street, you know, white shoe boys, uh, people all affiliated with the social register in the United States. But the OSS gets decommissioned after the war. However, U.S. entry into World War II And the planning for the post-war peace had been begun before the U.S. even entered the war, okay, and and obviously before the OSS was created. Some of this planning called the War and Peace Studies Project is still classified, but Peter Dale Scott speculates that it likely called for the creation of the CIA. Some of these still classified reports that the War and Peace Studies Project released were likely calling for the creation of something like the CIA, okay? Okay. And this War and Peace Studies project was paid for by the Rockefeller Foundation and carried out by people on the Council on Foreign Relations in conjunction with the State Department. And the Council on Foreign Relations is really just a a Rockefeller, Wall Street think tank. So you really have Wall Street making the plans for how the U.S. is going to run the world after World War II. This was presented to the American public by people like Henry Luce, who was a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and the publisher of Life magazine. And he wrote his famous essay, The, Centu- the American Century. Okay, the, this is going to be an American century after World War II, and we're going to get out there and show leadership in the world, right, which is really making the world safe for all of Luce's big business friends. He was also the publisher of Fortune magazine. Okay? Now, the opposition to this was Henry Wallace's Century of the Common Man. Henry Wallace was Roosevelt's very progressive anti-fascist vice president and he is directly opposed to what Luce is calling for. He wants the the next century to be not dominated by Anglo-America but by the common man, for America to use its technology and leadership to allow the common man to prosper in the post-war world. For his trouble, Wallace gets taken out in 1944, not like JFK was taken out, but with a coup at the Democratic Party convention, they put in Truman, and the rest is history. Okay, so after World War II ends, there's lobbying for the creation of an intelligence service, even though the war is over. The State Department and the Department of Defense and the FBI resist this because it sort of encroaches on their territory, but the corporate overworld wants it. Dulles and people like Ferdinand Eberstadt and James Forrestal are behind this. They're bankers for Dylan Reed. I'm talking about Eberstadt and Forrestal here. Eber- Dylan Reed is the one of the most storied Wall Street investment banks. And so these are people with a lot of power. Okay, so between the Cold War, the 1949 Red Scare, McCarthyism, and the victory of Eisenhower on a tsunami of Standard Oil cash, the last remnants of the New Deal are removed from the US power elite. And those overworld figures were successful in getting the CIA created in 1947. So when Kennedy takes over, he has to deal with all these power elite leg men for the overworld of corporate wealth. And some of them are both oligarchs, you'd have to say, and officials in his administration. For example, a key figure was the Treasury Secretary C. Douglas Dillon. Okay, that Dillon is the same Dillon from the Wall Street Bank whose representatives were instrumental in lobbying for the creation of the CIA. When I taught East Asian history, there's a photo of a priceless Chinese artifact in a museum. And the plaque that's next to it reads that this was a generous gift from the Dillon family. So what nice folks, these power elite overlords are. They even give us some priceless artifacts that they happen to have laying around. Okay, we've all seen that famous picture of JFK early in his presidency on the telephone receiving the news of Patrice Lumumba's death, right? Uh, He's got a grimace on his face, and he's got his head sort of buried in his hand, and he looks very distraught because Lumumba had been killed, and Kennedy supported Lumumba. Kennedy wanted to support third-world nationalists like Lumumba and Nasser in Egypt, Sukarno in Indonesia, Juan bosch in Dominican Republic, even... Mossadegh supporters in Iran uh, instead of the Shah. Kennedy also supported Algerian and Vietnamese independence uh, when he was a senator. On the other hand, you had people like this Wall Street guy, Douglas Dillon, Kennedy's treasury secretary, and he didn't like figures like Lumumba. JFK didn't know it, but under the Eisenhower administration, Dillon had specifically supported the assassination of Lumumba, which Eisenhower authorized at the suggestion of Dylan and other people. Now with all this context in mind, let's look at November 22nd. It's the strangest thing. A lot of the cabinet is in the air over the Pacific Ocean when the assassination takes place. A lot of the Pentagon brass is in Honolulu for a very strange DEFCON or DOD conference on the subject of Vietnam. Colonel Prouty has been sent on a strange assignment to Antarctica by Ed Lansdale. Uh, Proudy later comes to believe that this was specifically to keep him out of Washington. Alan Dulles, who is retired, is at the farm, uh, which is uh, sort of slang for uh, CIA headquarters. Strange he'd choose to be hanging out there on this day. Uh, Charles Dillon, who we were just talking about, is the Treasury Secretary, right? And he's on vacation. Uh, The Treasury controls the Secret Service. And the Secret Service performs very poorly in Dallas as you've probably seen on some famous video footage. At Love Field, when Kennedy lands in Dallas, uh, one Secret Service officer is waved off his position on the back of JFK's limo, where he would have been pretty helpful when the shots were fired. Uh, This guy looks confused in the video, and he throws up his arms in frustration, but his superiors uh, keep him off, keep him from getting back on the limo. Later, when the shots ring out in Dallas, most of the agents are useless Except for Clint Hill, who tries to run up to the president and to Jackie and jumps in the back, the driver of Kennedy's limo slows down almost to a stop, which is the opposite of what he would be trained to do. After JFK's shot, a lot of people run towards the sound of gunshots that they had heard by the picket fence in Dealey Plaza, but they find armed men there with Secret Service badges who wave them away. Now, it turns out later that there were no official Secret Service men on the grassy knoll that day, so those men were apparently imposters. This is more what I'd call rock-solid evidence for a conspiracy. Uh, It's eventually discovered that the CIA managed the production of Secret Service credentials, so that's another interesting footnote. Uh, Remember also that the Secret Service failed to adequately investigate the Chicago plot a few weeks earlier, uh, as Abby and Oliver were discussing. So when Charles Dillon, the Treasury Secretary, appears in front of the Warren Commission, really the Dulles Commission, right, since he, Alan Dulles pretty much ran the whole thing, uh, he's treated with kid gloves. Alan Dulles even calls him Doug and asks how the family's doing. Uh, they're old friends, after all, right? So Dulles and Dillon, these guys had basically created the CIA or lobbied for its creation, if you recall. Uh, the fact that the Secret Service had destroyed most of its record after Dallas. Didn't seem to sour things at all uh, during Dylan's Warren Commission testimony. Recall that the Warren Commission was created itself after an intense lobbying effort from establishment men like Joe Alsop and Eugene Rostow. They acted as intermediaries for Dean Acheson. Acheson himself was an establishment figure who really probably ranked even higher than Alan Dulles if you were going to try and be precise about these things. I mean, it's a little ridiculous. I mean, it's an informal thing, of course, but like Acheson is somebody who would not have been involved in an operational level, but you're talking about the strata that likely gave the green light for this because Kennedy was actually working very much against so many of the plans laid by Acheson uh, in the years uh, immediately after World War II. So now let me try and conclude here with something that might be useful in conjunction with Oliver's films and his excellent discussion with Abby today. As we know from JFK and the new films and such, the CIA's fingerprints are all over Oswald, and thus the assassination. Using an underold figure like Jack Ruby to eliminate Oswald also points to the CIA because that was their MO, working with organized crime figures and other deniable marginal characters. The Secret Service failures and their actions at Parkland, like taking all the footage of the press conference, for example, these all point to some level of Secret Service complicity. The way the military managed the autopsy also implicates them pretty unmistakably. But it's an oversimplification, I'll argue, to say the national security state killed JFK. Things like the roles of Dulles and Dillon in the creation of the CIA or the role of Rockefeller's Council on Foreign Relations in designing the post-World War II American century, or these establishment guys like Atchison, who were out of government but still managed to get the Warren Commission created, all these indicate that the crime and cover-up were sanctioned by the establishment, or the American deep state, or whatever you want to call it. There was a consensus that at the pinnacle of America's unelected power structure, uh, JFK his, and his plans to end the Cold War, establish the new frontier, launch the war on poverty, support nationalistic third world development, all these things were deemed tremendous threats to the national power centers. These are extremely small circles of men whose extreme wealth and power make them constitutionally opposed to democracy in any real sense. This is the governing regime that the Kennedy brothers opposed and that ultimately killed the Kennedy brothers but they did it in a way that allowed them to avoid announcing that democracy had been overthrown or vetoed. Uh, This for them is the beauty of covert operations. The cover story allows for plausible deniability. The state can exercise its dictatorial power while maintaining its democratic veneer. So that's how it is. And that's why we must give thanks to people like Oliver Stone, Jim DiEginio and Abby Martin for devoting their time, energy, hearts, and souls to the task of bringing these facts to light. I'd like to extend my deepest thanks to Abby Martin and Haley Rounceville for their contributions and, of course, to the one and only Oliver Stone. I'd like to thank the American Truth and Reconciliation Committee for their support. Learn more at americantruthnow.org. Big thanks to Dana Chavaria for engineering this episode and to Casey Moore for the artwork. Today's music is... Too Good Your Dreams Don't Come True by Mock Orange, one of my favorite songs the last few years for what it's worth. Lastly, I want to thank all of you, the American Exception listeners. Your support allows us to keep bringing the light.